This episode of the RPG Academy podcast is brought to you by Galatoon. Are you a fan of anime, Super Smash Brothers, or Overwatch? Then you'll want to check out Galatoon, a new battle arena card game for two to five players. No more waiting. Everyone attacks at the same time. And since you're playing for KOs, your character respawns to stay in the battle the entire time. After successfully funding their first game last year, Galatoon returns with a new game expansion live on Kickstarter now until July 2nd. Just go to kickstarter.com and search Galatoon. That's G-A-L-A-T-U-N-E. There are lots of great pledge rewards for new and returning fans. Galatoon is also a proud sponsor of this year's Akatacon, so be sure to come by their booth and check out the game this November. And now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael, and I have brought along a special guest co-host, Taylor, from Riverhouse Games, and the RPG Academy Network show, Game Closet. Taylor, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Michael. Fantastic. So how you been, buddy? I have been actually really great. It's um, it's jumping into Minnesota summertime, so it's been a little warmer for than I would like it to be. Um, but, you know, uh, it's it's been kind of rainy and cool the past couple of days, so I, I can't complain too much. Yeah, I think last time I had you on, it was like negative 11 degrees or something crazy. Yeah, we swing from like pole to pole, so we'll hit like minus 40 with wind chill, and then we'll also hit like 110 and 90% humidity. <laughs> so you're 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 practicing for life on Mars when our planet invariably <laughs> come kaput. I love it. It's great. <laughs> okay, so this is going to be faculty meeting episode 112 for a limited time only, and I'm extremely proud of that title. <laughs> we are going to talk about putting a clock on adventures. So a situation where you're not going to give the party infinite amount of time to complete something. Some of the ways that you can do it, maybe some of the reasons why you should or shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get too far into things, we always like to take a second to remind people why we're here. Myself and my co-host, we like to talk about RPGs more than actually give advice. And we hope that in these conversations that uh, we can share some of the experience that we have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But we do understand that the opinions we share and the advice that we may actually give does not work at every table every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do feel is pretty universal. And Taylor, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct. So no matter what game you play, the system or edition... What rules you use, don't use, or misuse. If you're having fun, you're doing it right. Now, with that out of the way, do we have any announcements this morning? Uh, just quickly, I want to talk about a catacon because all you people thought it was over. But no, it's not. Uh, the Kickstarter funded. We are a go. We still have lots of room because we got a lot more money from like sponsors than we expected. So we funded easily, but we have like a third of the players we were expecting. I knew we would get more as we get closer because we were so far early. But if you go to Eventbrite and search for a catacon, or if you go to theacatacon.com and there will be links there, uh, you can still buy badges. They're just a little bit more expensive than, than through the Kickstarter. 
Taylor, do you have anything? Uh, I would just like to remind people to sign up for, there is a really cool convention happening in November uh, called a Catacon. Um, <laughs> oh, are, you sure it's not Ar- are you sure it's not Arcadacon? Oh, it might be that too. Um, I would have to check my Rolodex. Um, but yeah, no, like honestly, people, if you're listening, like sign up for this. If you can make it to Dayton, Ohio, it is incredible. I went last year and I, it was a game changer. It opened my eyes. It was amazing. Um, it was, it's a really intimate con to play games with close friends, people who all enjoy the same thing. Shared interests are great for conventions. And if you're going to a catacon, you know that you share the interest of the RPG Academy Network. So I know that I can sound like I'm on an infomercial for a catacon, like anytime I talk about it. But like, honestly, it's one of the best experiences that I had last year. Uh, so if you can, if you can make it out there, definitely do so. I should just let you go instead of me. I'll, I'll, I'll edit my part out because that was awesome. Okay, so before we get on to the show exactly, let's uh, talk about how people can get a hold of us. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the RPG Academy, and you can find my regular co-host Caleb at the Caleb G. Uh, you can email the RPG Academy at the RPG Academy at gmail.com. And you can find me at, uh, at Leviathan Files on Twitter. Uh, you can find everything else that I do at riverhousegames.com. Uh, we have links to all of our podcasts, uh, the games that we're working on, and hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, a news, uh, and updates section. My favorite part of that website is a curated list of resources and games for queer and LGBT plus tabletop games. So you can find a bunch of games that deal with queer issues and a bunch of articles, um, communities, uh, lists um, surrounding that whole space on the internet. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into the show. So first up is our Gamer's Lexicon, and this week that is Round. So in D&D terms and other RPGs, a round is when combat actions happen. Uh, in D&D, it lasts approximately six seconds in in-game time, uh, and every character that acts during that turn makes up that round. So in the narrative, all those actions occur at roughly the same time, um, but using an initiative system, the player's PCs and DMs, NPCs or monsters, uh, act in order for their turn. So once all the characters that can act do, the round is over and the next round starts back at the top of the initiative. So that's pretty standard fare. Uh, it has not changed a whole lot in d and do, I do recall in some of the older editions of D&D, that they really emphasized that everything happened at the same time. And there was actually, you had to declare all of the actions before anything happened. So the DM would go around the table and you would, Taylor, you would say, my character is going to use a magic missile against ogre number two and so on and so on and so forth. So if it got to the point where ogre number two was already dead, you still had to shoot your magic missile at it because it all actually happened at the same time. Mm. And, and also let's say your magic missile killed ogre number two, Ogre number two still got to do something because its action happened at the same time that your action happened. So you could potentially kill you at the same time that you killed it. Oh, that is rough. <laughs> from, from like a narrative standpoint, I kind of enjoy that. But from an actually managing at the table, it was awful. Yeah. It's, it slowed everything down. It was so much additional work. And then you did get into some weird things where people had wasted turns and wasted rounds, which... You know, again, from like the simulation aspect was great, but from the I'm having fun aspect, not so much. Can we take a minute to talk about some games that break the rules on the round? Absolutely. So I am a huge fan of Powered by the Apocalypse games. Um, You can hear me rant and rave about them at any chance that I get. 
one of my favorite things about Powered by the Apocalypse games is that most of them kind of just get rid of the idea of round-based combat. So in Dungeon World, which is, you know, the big one that might be the, um, the D&D analogy for Powered by the Apocalypse, everything just kind of flows in the story. The DM doesn't actually make turns or contributions to rounds. Instead, the GM makes moves based off of the player's moves in the rounds. And there's no real initiative order. It's all based on narrative flow. So if a player has an idea for something that would be narratively appropriate, they can just jump in with their player. And the the GM's PCs or the monsters would then react based on the moves that the player's making. So it's it's combat without any sort of round or turn initiative, but everything is still happening in that flow and same sort of time. So if you're shooting a magic missile at the ogre and the ogre is running towards you, um, you could still have it on the um, the mixed results or or uh, on a six minus for powered by the apocalypse. You could still have that ogre's momentum carry it through um, and have both of you you know sort of damage each other at the same time but it's not something that's sort of you know that that um rigid everything is happening in this you know circular order now i i do enjoy that type of initiative there are some potential downsides but there's potential Mm -hmm. downsides with all of them Uh, i got to play in a game recently at a convention with a newer dm and they we were playing a different game wasn't D&D and it didn't have a defined initiative system mm-hmm. and it was very quickly apparent that that the people who were more vocal yes got to go a lot there there like it was like four or five turns to one because they kept saying oh I want to do this I want to do this mm-hmm. and the more quiet people never like there was a point where we had to say wait this person hasn't gone yet so I, th- I think the dm just has has to have management mm-hmm. capabilities or the table again this was a con we didn't know each other if we were all friends already it probably would be a little more amicable anyways but but that was the one thing i saw was like oh man this this isn't fun for people who aren't vocal Mm -hmm. and i think the the thing to think about that um like you said the dm has to take that authority and that management but if you're also sitting as a player and you notice that someone hasn't gone in a while and it's it's your kind of like jumping in Bring them into the fiction. So try and work with their character. So if you are describing an action, tell about how your player or your character turns to theirs uh, to see what they do next. And that's sort of like a narrative passing of the baton that sort of helps them get into the situation if they may feel too shy or too quiet to to pipe up, uh, to interject into that stream. That's a very good idea. Uh, one last one I would mention is Star Wars Edge of the Empire. They do a rigid initiative but it's flexible in who goes. Yeah. So you have you have PC turn one, PC turn two, and then like maybe the monsters. Each round, you can interchange who is PC one, PC two is. So if it makes sense for me to go first in the first round, but then last on the next round, that's totally okay. Mm-hmm. And then there's games like Feng Shui 2 and uh, I think Exalted that do uh, initiative as a sort of countdown tracker. So your actions can spend initiative points and then um, the round counts down uh, that way. Yeah, I, I played that a while back. That that works pretty well because if, if you want to do something really cool, mm-hmm. it may take seven turns or whatever. They, they call them something. I can't remember what they are. If you want to do something minor, it may only cost one or two. So you can kind of figure out how quickly you want to go versus how much of an impact you want to have on the story. Mm-hmm. And then I probably would be remiss if I didn't mention just this week, Mike Merle's released an alter- alternative uh, initiative system for D&D 5th edition where you use different dice types, oh. so D6, D8, D10, D12, depending on what you're going to do. 
So if you're going to just swing a sword, you would roll like a thing a d6 for your initiative. A spell was a d12. A ranged weapon was like a d8. So you could potentially like roll a one mm-hmm. uh, on your d12 and go early. Because uh, I think in this one, lower is better. Okay. Uh, so normally it would take you a little longer to cast a spell than to swing a sword. So most often if you're rolling a higher die type, you're going to go later. But there's still a, some randomness at the table. Mm-hmm. And then also, like, if you want to add in something, like, I want to do two things, then you roll an additional D6 so that your number goes up. And then you just count up. So you would say any ones, all right, any twos. Any, so you don't actually have to write things down because you're going to change it every single time. Mm. Each each turn, it would be a different initiative order. But there is still some variability based on what you're doing. I, it seems kind of cool. I, like, I wouldn't be afraid to use it to try it, but I'm not sold on it based on how it was described. And I may be doing a terrible job of describing <laughs> it. So go find that. Or actually, I may see if I can link it in the show notes when we get there. Yeah, that'll be really cool. So now we're going to get ready to move into our general assembly, which again is setting a clock on an adventure and all the various ways you can and maybe should or shouldn't force the PCs to navigate a section of an adventure without having the ability to stop and rest or to stop and plan for each next part uh sometimes you you probably have heard this referred to as the five minute work day that is very common in D specifically where a caster for example will use all their spells they're like all right time out guys we need to camp out for eight hours or i can't cast magic missile again tomorrow type of a thing so this is a situation where you're not going to let them do that so have you ever played in a game taylor as a player or as a dm where this has happened uh any examples you can share of actual gameplay from you yeah, uh, so all of the above, pretty much, players, GMs, um, and thinking about it when I'm, you know, writing and prepping games for other people to play. So there, the five-minute workday is something that I think is the biggest example of that. Um, the the other example that I can think of, um, you know, a situation in which people use setting clocks on adventures is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. So players planning for something. So um, I know that we can uh, we can try and when want and have fun um, trying to plan for things like heists um, or, you know, oncoming attacks or what have you. But um, I think that there's uh, a trap that we can all fall into in spending four hours of planning for something that may take 15 minutes at the table. And I just want to jump in right there because if you watch a lot of heist movies, almost always the plan goes awry. Yep. Immediately. <laughs> Immediately, right. So if you're going to follow the, the narrative and the tropes, you're going to let them plan for four hours, and then you're immediately going to just screw it up anyways, and all that plan is then for naught. And well, and that creates a vicious cycle because the players planning are saying, okay, what are the different ways that this could go the GM wrong. can... Yeah, exactly. And then that makes it go longer, and then you have to be more devious, and then they're like, oh, we've been planning for six hours. He's going to be really devious. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the the bank is closed. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I've I've definitely looked at it from that side of the GM standpoint, and then looking at it from the player standpoint too. Like, I know I've I've been playing for a long time, and so I trying to be more aware of this when it's happening. But like knowing that that sort of like interrupts the flow of play, um, and trying to um trying to interject my own limits or time frames um so making sure that my character cares enough about what we're doing so that they're not saying oh i'm burning my five spell slots let's rest for eight hours when we're in a dangerous situation or when there might be a deadline on the line or you know any of these other things that that um that may come up uh to put this time limit on so m- making sure that i'm co- contributing the sense of urgency from both sides of the table 
And for me, there's a couple things that immediately come to mind. And it comes down a lot to what type of game are you running? Mm-hmm. If if this is an adversarial type of game, which some people really enjoy, where the DM really is trying to set very difficult challenges that if you don't make good planning and good execution, you can fail, th- then it makes sense for you to go into every encounter trying to win as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, it it doesn't make sense for you to hold back your best spells thinking, well, we might fight something better later. Because if you die now, then it's over. But if you're playing into more of like the pulp action, pulp fiction type of shows where, I mean, how many times have you seen a movie where someone packs a grenade? And of course, the grenade is the last thing they use on the ba- on the boss. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you see the moment, it's like a Chekhov's grenade. It goes in the pocket. You know it's going to get used at some point when it's dramatically appropriate. Yep. But it's not used in the first encounter with the minions. At least not usually, unless they got more than one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're letting them know this is the type of game where, yes, you're eventually going to get to the more dramatic point. That's when I want you to use your powerful stuff. Then then it makes sense for them to say, no, we're going to stop and rest after every battle because it would be dumb for us not to. Yeah. And I think that's where those clocks come in where you know, you've only got seven days. Someone has been poisoned, and if you don't get a cure back within seven days, that person will die. Or, you know, again, someone's been kidnapped. They sent you a finger. They're going to send you a new body part every day. You might have four or five days for before they're permanently disfigured or dead. Characters are poisoned. Like an actual PC is poisoned, Like so they're having to deal with that. If you don't set those types of clocks, then it doesn't make a lot of sense for people not to take their time. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of traps that we can fall into in in terms of setting clocks. So I think we've talked a little bit about why we would want to. And so uh, some some things I think next to talk about would be, you know, how to do it or things to watch out for. So like you said, making narrative um, decisions about, you know, is there an urgent situation that's happening and what kind of constraints is that putting on the players. But the thing to watch out for is to to make sure that the players are invested in that narrative constraint beyond the fact that it's just something to push the story forward. So making sure that the the person who's poisoned is someone who the PCs have an emotional connection to. So I would be hesitant to to sort of start the adventure out with saying, you know, here's this noble um, who is important in the town who's dying in seven days. It's your job to stop it. It, it might be something that I would throw in maybe three or four sessions in. And sort of maybe choose an NPC that they had drawn an emotional con- connection to. So uh, I, I remember this is going to be a, an RPG Academy deep cut. Um, <laughs> but let's let's see what Stomp the Goblin does with a, a, a slow acting poison. Um, so, you know, finding a fan favorite NPC and saying, you know, this is going to be, you know, the stakes, making sure that those stakes are emotional. I think Stop the Goblins from DM's block, isn't it? I hacked up. I made a <laughs> look. It's early in the morning. They're are, they are an amazing show, and I do not fault you at all for listening to them. And I'm sure they probably have covered this type of stuff before as well. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the thing that I would say is it's all things in moderation. You know, I want there to be battles in my game where it's very t- very difficult, maybe to the point the PCs have to run away. But every battle shouldn't be that tough. Mm-hmm. I want battles in my game to be easy where the PCs get to feel like badasses and they just wipe out things. But every battle shouldn't be easy. You can't set a clock on every adventure because yep. then it kind of loses the, the, the importance and it loses the emphasis. If they normally have all the time in the world and then now you suddenly put a clock on it, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That that changes the dynamic. That That's probably a part of the adventure and encounter that will be you know, memorable to them. 
but you can't overuse it or then it becomes somewhat meaningless. Yeah, exactly. One of the downsides is that you're more likely to TPK your party because yeah. I did that once. <laughs> Back when this was, I think this was around the time we were starting the podcast and Nico I was part of the part of the group. Anyone who's been listening for a long time knows Nico from our Maven campaign. He he was on a couple faculty meetings, I think. He ran a game for a little while. It wasn't part of the podcast, so I don't know if we just didn't record it or if it was before the podcast. But it was set in like a post-apocalyptic zombie future. We we were playing dwarves, but it was basically like The Walking Dead, and like like you know they had these secret underground bunkers that were very controlled, and you know they killed everybody because they didn't want the zombies to get in. Very typical zombie fiction, but in D and D world, and there was a bit of a clock on how quick, because one of us was bit, and there was supposedly a cure that we had to get to before that person turned. And it was me specifically. I kept pushing. It's like, we have to go, we have to go, we have to go. And by doing that, we missed some things that Nico expected us to like role play out in encounters. Mm-hmm. So we were totally unprepared and we all died. Mm-hmm. So putting a clock on things can absolutely lead to TPKs because you don't give them the resources they're used to having. And again, if they're not used to having to get by on not having all their spells or all their health, they don't have a time to heal, they don't have time to get their healing spells back, it drastically changes how combat can go. And if people aren't used to that, they very easily will TPK themselves. Yeah. Well, and I think you touched upon something, too, that, you know, past combat, when you have a, a a clock on something or a timer running the players may not be as vigilant towards story hooks or towards um, investigations so being cognizant of that and saying you know okay if we have this timer that you know keep it i'm just gonna lean into the mistake i made if stomp the goblin is gonna you know bite the big one in seven days and you're you have to navigate a trap filled dungeon. I think that kind of feels like a raw deal, because if you if you ha- create the sense of urgency and expect them to rush through stuff, they might not be super. They might not be super excited to go through your big puzzle that's going to be spending hours of like, how do we figure this out? Or like, what's the secret with the brazier? Uh, we gotta go. There's only twelve hours left. Um, sort of deal. The, it might be something that's seen as. Um, counterintuitive to the timer that you've put in place, creating a, a time sink like puzzles or like a trap room. So just kind of being aware of the set dressing around the, the timer encounter. I, well, I can see that both ways, because I, I definitely agree from a player psychology perspective, it's going to feel weird to me that we're on a, we're in a rush, but then we have this challenge that takes up a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Even if it's real time, like it may only take like an hour in the game, but if it takes us three hours at the table, that's going to feel a little bit off Mm -hmm. but that can also be a way to increase the tension uh you know if you have like a like a big d12 Mm. and you're like you know i'm gonna turn it for every hour when it gets to to zero essentially that's when the thing happens then i see that it's almost like playing dread in a way like oh every now and then the dm turns it now there's only 10 hours left we've been in this puzzle room for an hour now we can't figure it out do we just rush through it and hope we survive you know i can see you using that to your benefit but it could also absolutely hurt you if you're not careful with how you use it. Yeah. And I mean, in everything that we're talking about, that if you're having fun, you're doing it right, I think still applies. So Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there were three, I mean, there were three things that you touched on in there, and I, I want to jump in on all of them. The first is, um, uh, I'll just lay out the three, and then if we can keep going, then we can keep going on them. Um, so the first one is uh, time at the table versus time in the story. So um, there are two, like... 
we've been talking about time set in story constraints for this whole time, but we there's also a way of you know setting timers literally at the table and saying, okay, I know that we want to plan, but we we want to make sure that this game is going. So 20 minutes of planning, uh, then when we pop in, and I think that that is sort of that that social contract. So we can talk a little bit about that. Um, the second thing is having countdown timers or sort of like a, a sort of like a tactile or visual element of that time clocking down because i think that that creates like a and it evokes the emotion i think better than just saying you have 7 days to do whatever and then the third thing was something that i completely forgot at this point so um <laughs> so uh i I've, I've noticed people talking about you know social contracts a lot um that's uh, a phrase that kind of comes up a you know, frequently, and that's things like session zeros and what have you. Um, but I think having a social contract and agreeing upon that when timers are set is going to be something that is pretty important. So um, it creates a sense of trust between the GMs and the players and saying, okay, are we all buying into the concept of having a timed, you know, encounter or timed adventure? Because I know for me, uh, who has some anxiety issues, having timers in real life is stressful, and having timers at the game can be stressful too. But if I'm like, if I'm buying into that and saying, okay, I know from the jump that we're going to have this thing that is going to create this sense of urgency, I think that I can like prepare myself or play into that a little bit more. Um, so when I know, okay, we're going to only have 20 minutes to plan, that creates that sort of like fun constraint rather than saying, you have 20 minutes to plan, go. Yeah, I mean, I think that comes, it's, is, is something being put upon you or are you accepting that? Yep. If you accept, okay, we're going to take 20 minutes, you've bought in, you've agreed to this, It's it feels different than someone saying, I'm only giving you 20 minutes. Yeah. I think it's a, very, it's a very subtle difference in how you present it, but it can have a drastic difference in how it's accepted and, and felt at the table with the players. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I tend to like table, like table time timers more than I like in-game timers. And I think that it's because of that buy-in. So when when I'm a player, I can easily say, like, oh, of course, we would only take 20 minutes to time this because we have a finite amount of time to play the game. So let's use that as the the sort of mechanical creation of urgency rather than, like, a countdown timer that's in the game. Um, I think, and this is 100% my play style, and I know that there are people who have loads of fun playing with in-game timers but like i think that things should happen when they're dramatically appropriate to happen which means that we're always going to stop the clock at one second left we're always going to get the the antidote um as the person is taking their last breath or we are not because that's the kind of dramatic you know expectations that the game has set up to that point so um i think that you know timers are going to be true to the fiction that has been established but the way to establish that fiction is by setting timers at the table and saying, we're only going to have 10 minutes to plan. And if we don't plan enough, it's because it's dramatically appropriate. Right. I touched earlier about like the, the physical representation of time mm-hmm. at the table. It was kind of like dread. And I, and I do think that's a very apt comparison because the thing about dread that I like so much is that it actually instills the tension in the players that you're trying to instill in the play and the characters. Yeah. And, and it's very often hard to do that, you know, to actually make the characters feel stress if the players know that it's just a game. Right. And dread dread allows you to kind of bypass that. A physical clock would do the same thing. The 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 characters in the fiction may not really be under a lot of stress, but if the players are, it 
it translates into that narrative and they're going to be like, we have to hurry, we have to hurry mm-hmm. because I can actually see we're running out of time as Michael. So my character Uthgar is going to feel that through me. Mm-hmm. And moving on to the sort of like physical representation, I think Dread does that very, very well because it's, it's not a literal timer, but if you think about a tower of Jenga blocks, like there's only a finite amount of pulls that you can do before that pull, that falls down. And so while that might not translate into 10 minutes, uh, you know, seven hours of in-game time, it definitely creates that sort of urgency in that timed system. And it has like a sort of soft timer, if you will. It's absolutely a countdown system. It's just a has a bit of variation depending on skill and some other things there, but it absolutely, every time you pull a brick, you are closer to it falling. Yep. Yep. And I think that kind of moves me into what I was bringing up in my second is that I think I prefer countdown timers more than clock timers. So it's a way of, you know, still instilling that urgency and that, you know, you have a limited amount of time, but I think it allows for, a better crafting of the story at the table than than creating those time limits in play. So Dread is a great example. Um, another example that I, I really love is the Dungeon World uh, adventure called Dangerous Space Jail by Encoded Designs. So that's written by Phil Vecchion, and it uses a countdown timer that is really great that doesn't actually count down. If you think about it in the way that the story goes, it doesn't actually count down what it says that it does because it's an artifact that has eight gems on it um, and the gems are slowly lighting up as the players are traveling through the dungeon. Uh, and when the last gem lights up, that means that the big demon lord has escaped uh, and has opened a portal into the real world and is about to wreak havoc on, on Earth and destroy it. So as the players are venturing through the dungeon, they're seeing this thing that they're holding light up with different gems and saying, you know, he's getting there, he's getting there, he's getting there. But it's not lit up through any sort of like time constraint. It's lit up through events in the room. It's lit up as a GM move in Dungeon World. So if the players roll a six minus and it's particularly heinous, as the GM, you're told, like, light up one of those gems. Like, they did that. (laughs) Um, And so it creates that urgency and that sense of a timer clock, like a, a timer clocking down. But I think that it's it's something that uses that more like dramatic time than linear time. So uh, we've all been talking about timers as something that is linear counting down or, you know, um, maybe not l- strictly linear, but still counting down. But what about timers in time travel games? So Time Watch is a game that I have been yearning to play. I think there's a Zelda game, and this is where I'm going to reveal that I'm a fake nerd because I don't know which Zelda game it is. It's the one, it's, I see the moon and it's like falling as it's the dawn of the final day. Um, one, uh, and Ocarina of Time. Oh, it has time in the title, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to do Link, Link to the Past because I'm old. Oh, okay. Yep. But that one. So you, you're going through the story and you have the Ocarina of Time uh, that allows you to travel back. So the entire game you're playing against a timer, but there's time travel involved. So you can always go back in time to continue to do stuff. Um, and continue to interact with the story, but all the while the story is like counting down this timer. And I think that that would be something interesting to play in a time travel game. Um, so like Time Watch or like, I think The Strange does time travel pretty well. And, and knowing that there's this timer, but sort of like being able to manipulate that. You know, I'm almost famous within people who listen to our show that I enjoy time travel and I put it into a lot of my games, mm-hmm. sometimes whether you realize it or not. 
Uh, I'm just a fan of time travel games. Heck yeah. Uh, and, and stories in, in particular, so I like to do that. I don't think I've ever used one in that fashion where there was a, a countdown clock involved, but that certainly does add a bit of the element. I could even also see it where, you know, maybe you have a limited number of time jumps, mm. like like seven, and after your seventh, you cannot go back or can't go forward anymore. And so then you are on the, you know, like once you've done your seventh jump, you now have two hours before the game is over. Yeah. So each time you use it yourself, you you are sort of penalizing yourself in a way. Like if we don't succeed on what we're trying to do in this jump, we've wasted a jump and it actually makes the game more difficult. Okay. I like that. And especially because it creates a countdown timer and a regular timer at the same time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but so I want to talk about some of the reasons why you why you should do this. Yeah, uh, I th- think the easiest is, is it's a memorable encounter. Again, if you don't overuse it, it, it's something that I think the players would probably talk about for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it it kind of brings some of that tension that you're trying to put into the story to the players, which then translates into the story. But beyond those, are there are there any other reasons you can think of on why we would want to put a clock on adventures? My, I feel bad because my answer is no. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not a fan of doing like timer a countdown adventures. Like I, I definitely see the value, and I think that it's something fun to play with. But like I'm definitely more of a fan of like the countdown timer, dangerous space trail, where it's something that it's like, it's more narrative driven than sort of like time driven. Um, I, f- I think that like putting uh, a clock timer on something is a way around all the things that we would have said, like why you would want to put them on. And I think that there are better ways to go get around that. So for the five minute workday in particular, I think you brought it up earlier, like making sure that the players are having encounters where they don't feel that they need to burn their ninth level spell slot right away on a MOOC and then immediately like take a rest, like make sure that you have things that are appropriate for their challenge that are dramatically appropriate that are, you know, sort of like things that they're not going to want to just explode and stop on. As far as creating senses of urgency, like countdown timers are there. Also, just like generally making sure that your your stakes are high in a way that that is because of the players and not because of like the time constraint. I think the only time that I would want to put a, t- a countdown timer in there is if that's like the the story that I would want to tell, and that feels like a cop out answer to me. Like honestly, I'm sorry. <laughs> No, I, I don't think it is. I mean, I, I think, you know, we went into the saying that it's something that you should only use occasionally. Yeah. And, and that could be mean, that could mean once. Yeah. You know, m- maybe you only use it one time in a particular campaign or with a particular group of people. Uh, but I do think it has its place at the table and I think it, it can do things for you. Mm-hmm. One of the things, because I'm a person who's much more interested in challenging the player's morality than mm-hmm. I am their combat ability. Mm hmm. So if I'm going to put a clock in a game, I'll, often it's going to be, one, because I think it's fun to change up the dynamic. Yeah. But then you have the ability to say, okay, you only have three days to complete this quest or something you care about is gone, whatever that may be. Halfway through the adventure, you find someone who's in danger. You know, there's the typical damsel in distress or, or some, you know, gentleman in distress. Yeah. Do you take, do you stop what you're doing to help this random stranger knowing it could end up killing this person you care about or this thing you care about. Mm-hmm. That tells me a lot about your character. And if you do do that, or if you don't do that, that gives me a lot of things to use in the future. Now, in a movie, they probably would stop and help them, 
that would cause them to run out of time, but there would be something that happens at the end that makes it okay. The whole, well, you, you are worthy because you blah, blah, blah. That may not be the game we're playing in, you know? So if they stop to help the random stranger, maybe that person they care about is just gone and they have to live with that. You know, I, I can see it going both ways, but I, that's what I'm more interested in is putting this, it could be treasure. It doesn't have to be, you know, someone in danger. It could just be like, there's 5 million gold pieces, but it takes you an hour to get to them. Yep. That hour could change, you know, this other thing. What do you do? And there's a lot that could happen in an hour. And I think that the the best, I think the best sort of setup to use a, a timer in your adventure is to do all the things that we've been talking about. So making sure that it's um, an emotional investment, making sure that the players are buying in ahead of time, making sure that like, you know, everything um, we have for dramatic effect, that it's not like a a conceit or an artifice on the the story. But um, I think what you brought up there with the million gold pieces is the idea of a MacGuffin. So having a timer that might not even be like, what the characters care about at the end of the game. So realizing that what happens in that hour is more important to them than the million gold pieces. So, cause I mean, money is fake, um, all this stuff and we're telling stories and blah, blah, blah. But like, if your players are going through that and then at the end of it going like, you know what, this timer that we thought was so important doesn't actually mean anything after all that we've been through. I think that that is like a really cool payoff that could happen from that sort of like setup and situation. So I am wrong. I do like timers now. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously if you're playing with a group of players, you should know their background and you could, you could make that MacGuffin something that matters to that particular character. It could be an uh, artifact, a, a, an ancestor, an heirloom, something like that. It doesn't have to be something random. It could be something that they specifically have said, mm-hmm. you know, my character cares about this. It could be a bus full of orphans about to go off a bridge if they have a particular connection to that. Yeah. So what are some, some reasons why we wouldn't want to do it? Oh, I feel like I've been listing those. <laughs> I think I, I wouldn't want to put in a timer in, in any situation where I would feel like it's something that I am putting in there as a constraint that like doesn't mean anything. So like being aware of if it feels like a conceit or like I just said, like a conceit or an artifice, like something that's artificially creating tension. I don't think it should be used as punishment. Yep. Like if you have players who do like to plan and rest between encounters, you know, I would say if if you as a DM aren't enjoying that and you're trying to like explain to your players, like this doesn't make a lot of sense because it's one thing to work it in naturally. It's another thing to say, well, this time, by God, you only got an hour or everyone dies. I, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent that those types of issues need to be dealt with out of the game. Like in-game punishments are never going to solve those types of things. Uh, this will be included. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is, do consequences matter? Like I, I remember specifically as a youngster, I, I'm almost always made up my own games because I didn't have a lot of access to adventures and modules. Yeah. But I, but I remember one, I can't remember the name, someone listening might be able to tell me, but there was a module where there was like this mystical dungeon or palace or something. It was this thing that was only ever on the same material plane as the characters for like seven days every 20 years. Mm. So it was like, okay, you go into this thing, but you have a limited amount of time to get back out. What happens if they fail? Yeah. I mean, you've just, you've, the conceit is if you don't get out, your characters are now trapped in this thing for 20 years. Maybe you continue that adventure, but more than likely, that's just going to be the end of that campaign. So are you willing to actually stick by your guns and say, in three days, 
the princess dies. Mm-hmm. Eh, she lived three and a half. You made it. You know, I, I can see going both ways, but but in particular, the whole if you don't get out, something bad happens. Mm-hmm. You're kind of stuck to you know you're kind of forced to abide by the rules that you set up unless you just want to disvalue the whole thing and kind of turn it to a. Like it feels like a cheat, you know. Yeah. It's like, well, you told us we were under this pressure, we failed, but now you're not going to let us live with the consequences. That seems like a bad thing to me. So the consequences need to be something that is not campaign ending, mm-hmm. unless that is what you're setting up. Yeah. Well, I could see definitely that that um, only for seven days for twenty every twenty years as being a really cool way to put in some Rip Van Winkle time travel sort of deal. Like, oh. It's the dawn of the eighth day. Fast forward 20 years. So-and-so is now king. This person's dead. Yeah. The land has changed. Like, being a way to, like, really upend your campaign and say, like, this is something that that's big. Yeah, because maybe the people on the inside, the time travels differently. It's only only been three days mm. inside this weird dungeon, but 20, 20 years have passed outside so that you're not, like, you're not 20 years older, but the world is 20 years older. Oh, I like that. Too. That could definitely be the other, the first thing that came to my mind with that is um is that would be like the story hook yep. where where something comes out ooh and you've got seven days to get it back in and you have to keep it back in so there's a there's a clock counting down of can we get the Tarask or the squid monster or whatever yeah um, you know they they have to get back in there and and we have to keep them in there when the clock counts down to zero so we can save our world our country our town whatever. And then maybe one of them does the heroic sacrifice where they stay at the door, you yeah. Know, so that so that no one can get out and saves the day. That could be a lot of fun, more than them going into it and having to get out. I think. Yeah. Dang, that is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you had touched on that you want to talk a little bit about some games specifically that do this. I know we've kind of went back and forth a little bit. Have you touched on those enough, or do you want to expound on that? Uh, well, I t- definitely talked about Dangerous Space Jail, which I will at any opportunity. It's my favorite Dungeon World adventure to run. It's what I run for, like, one-shots and stuff, so. Oh, fantastic. Shout-out to Encoded Design, friend of the show, uh, Phil and Chris from Misdirected Mark. Heck yeah, that was literally the first experience with Dungeon World that I ever had, and I ran it for Riverhouse people, and it was a blast, and it's the reason why I love Dungeon World so much, so thanks, guys. <laughs> There's also, um... Games that have countdown timers built into them, like RPGs that, RPG systems that do. So the one, uh, that I want to gush about is my, my, right now, my current flavor of the month, like favorite game is Masks, uh, the superhero powered by the apocalypse by Brendan Conway, uh, put out under Magpie Games. And there's, uh, different playbooks for the different superhero archetypes. Um, and one of the playbooks is The Doomed character. So, um, the entire concept is you are fast approaching your doom, uh, with like a capital D. And, uh, as you get closer to your doom, your powers increase, but the more time, the more you use those powers, the closer you get to your doom. So it's literally like a vicious cycle built into the playbook. And the playbook literally says like, you're probably not going to make it out, but like, that's the fun (laughs) of this playbook. Like you get to be the tragic backstory. Nice. And I think that that's super cool because it creates that sort of like counting down, like tension and uh, like narrative dramatic thrust that puts you into the situations. And there's different ways to like scale back your doom or like roll, like play with that countdown timer that are built into the mechanics of that game. And so if people are playing masks, I highly suggest you to, to check out that doomed playbook. 
The one thing that I will caution is that uh, it can get kind of emotionally heavy. Um, Masks is already like an emotionally intense game because as you are doing things, you're marking conditions like angry, hopeless, uh, afraid, insecure, uh, and encouraged to play those out in the fiction. And so uh, if you are playing the doomed, you're doing all of that emotional, you know, heavy work, but also saying like, hey, I'm not going to make it out of this. And like having that focus on every single session, answering, did I ease my back, ease back my doom or did I embrace it? Like having that countdown timer, I think is really, really cool. Um, I was going to jump in. I actually am. I have several mask games on my short list for Gen Con. Mm. Uh, it's something I definitely want to play. There's a couple that are specifically like Young Justice flavored. Yeah. Uh, um, and obviously, you know, we're friends with Rich, who does the uh, YJ Files, Caleb, and now Emily. Yep. So I, uh, there's actually several. There's like a Savage World Young Justice, and there's a there's another. There's like two or three systems that are running specifically Young Justice type games, and I've I've I got all of them on, on my short list. Hoping I can get into to one of them. I want to jump in there. We obviously, we talked about Dread. That, mm-hmm. that would absolutely be one. And then sort of the humorous version of what you're talking about would be All Out of Bubblegum. Yep. Which is also, you have 10 of whatever, uh, supposedly sticks of bubblegum. And then as you do things, you lose those. And the more you lose, the more powerful you get. But the way that game works is once you get down to like one or two, the game's going to kind of be over anyways. Mm-hmm. So you're sort of counting down yourself to the end of the game, not necessarily the end of your character. Yeah. Well, I think kind of underlying everything that we've been talking about, timers are pacing mechanics. So every story is built up of story beats. So uh, Jim McClure, if you're listening, this is going to be the story structure time. Um, <laughs> where uh, stories are like all follow the same plot structures and, and like Lego building blocks. And countdown timers are a way of um, sort of like putting those together at the table in mechanical ways. So the doomed playbook, the, the story beats are you get powerful incrementally uh, at, until you face your doom or all out of bubblegum is you get more ridiculous incrementally uh, until the, you know, sort of ridiculous climax and end of the game. So like countdown timers are just a way of like pacing the story and setting the beats for you rather than sort of like working those into the narrative, you know, doing your own legwork uh, or, or what have you. And I think the thing that sticks to my mind with those is there's always been this sort of conversation about D&D specifically. Uh, you know, people will, will live and die by the sword that if there is not danger mm-hmm. that the PCs might die at any time, then D&D loses any sense of fun. Mm-hmm. I completely disagree with that. Yep. I, I, I see where they're coming from. I'm not saying they're wrong, but for me, that's not true. Yeah. And obviously, I don't think, if you're having yeah, fun, you're doing it right. <laughs> absolutely. And if that's what you enjoy. But I, I think the games that we're talking about is it gives you at least more control over how your character goes out. Yep. You you have the agency to say, I'm going to go out heroically. I'm going to go out on a ball of, you know, ball of fire versus a, a game where it's like high level of uh, lethality where you could just get killed by a random goblin. You know, mm-hmm. it's an it's a, a ignoble death. You're just... I was walking through the forest and a random goblin shot me, got a natural 20, and now I'm dead. My, de- my death was, was meaningless in the narrative. It only reinforces the lethality of this game so that my future characters, my, my, me as a player, have learned something. My character learned nothing because they're dead. Mm-hmm. And these other types of games where you have a little bit more control, 
it allows you to to have that death that you want. Yeah. And if you want an ignoble death, you can certainly do that. But if you want to have a, a death with meaning or heroic sacrifice, it sort of lets you like you know, again like dread is a perfect example. If the tower's getting really wobbly, you always have the option of dread to just knock the tower over yourself and choose your your way out. Right. You know, uh, all out of bubblegum, I can get to the point where I know I'm going to succeed on this crazy thing, but I can't open a locked door because you know my hands don't work or whatever. Uh, ten candles, as you're burning things, you know you've only got one or two left. Yeah. Uh, uh, the terrible RPG from Jim McClure, you always have the option to wad up your character sheet and throw it to the DM, and your last thing happens. And I think that's an interesting way to put the power back into the player's hands for that one last moment. Yeah. Oh my goodness. How could I not have talked about 10 candles during this entire time? Like that's a game that has a literal visual countdown timer on it. Um, Not only in the amount of candles that are lit, but you're encouraged to play with tea light candles, um, which have the annoying habit of burning out at the game table. And if they do, if your candle burns down, and extinguishes itself because you burn out the wax or the wick, that counts as an extinction or an extinguishment or, or extinguishing. Is that the word? What are the I, words? It yeah. goes out. That's the extinguishment. Yeah. <laughs> I think is fine. Yeah. There we go. That counts as if you had like failed and blown out a candle. So if you're looking at these things and saying like, okay, we're counting down, this candle is guttering or like flickering in, and you can see like that the wax is all gone that creates that really sort of like bleak tension that 10 candles does so well. I, I love 10 candles so much. <laughs> I, I want to play it so badly. I've, I've, I've had a couple opportunities that have never panned out, mm-hmm. uh, but I really want to play that game. I, I think it would be right up my alley. Yeah. It's, Oh my God. Um, a catacon plug. The first time I played it was <laughs> at a catacon. Um, and even in a huge packed, uh, like game hall with people playing games and being loud, bright lights on and everything. We didn't even have candles because that would have been a fire hazard. So we played with like cards that we flipped over. Even at like with all those things that like mitigated the atmosphere, it was still one of the most terrifying game experiences that I've ever had in my entire life. It was harrowing. I, I encourage everyone to play it and experience the raw like roughness of that game. It's, it's an experience. And again, quick plug for a catacon. Uh, we rented separate rooms this year, so if we people want to play Ten Candles, we can give them a private room, so it will not be in the big hall. Oh boy, yeah. that's uh, that's a terrifying prospect, and I can guarantee <laughs> that I will run Ten Candles there. <laughs> well, then I then then we're, I'm going to play because I want to play so badly. All right. So. All right. So as always, we'd like to throw this back out to our audience. If you've had any experiences, good or bad, with setting clocks on adventures or being in an adventure with a clock, let us know. How did, you know what happened? Why was it good? Why was it bad? What did you like? What didn't you like? Uh, hit us up in the comments to this episode. Find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, or other, uh, and give us some feedback on what we didn't touch on we think you should have, or just let us know what happened at your table. So we're going to move into our last segment for this uh, episode, which is our new student introductions and this is where we take a look at a class and a background we mush them together and see what kind of interesting concepts we can come up with and for today we're going to do the guild merchant ranger so taylor when you think of a guild merchant ranger what comes to mind okay so i i had an idea immediately as you floated this by me uh the other day when we were prepping for this episode and i was like no that's too obvious so i thought of a second idea and i brought (laughs) enough to talk about both of them so (laughs) um the first thing that comes to mind when i think of a ranger guild merchant is um the sort of like wandering merchant 
who just sort of has everything for sale because they've been everywhere. So um, one of the cool things about Rangers is that you can just like, you travel all over the place, you know, just like a heck load about geography, about like the natural world. Um, you have a, like a huge skill, skill kit in, in Dungeons and Dragons. So it's, you know, feasible that you could just have a wide variety of experiences. So any, any place that you're going, you see this odd bobble, you pick it up and then you sell it later. And you're, you're part of this like wide net of people who all do the same thing. So it's sort of this eclectic, like every store. So when you have one of these, if you're playing them, um, as an NPC, they just, grift into town uh they open their trench coat and say hey kid you want to buy some artifacts (laughs) um (laughs) and they've got everything so like you could have um you could have this character as like an introduction to um moving the party outside of your your you know normal city or like area so you could introduce this magical artifact from like a, a far off land so maybe like a bone knife carved from like the frozen north people or like any sort of like piece of gold or like strange gemstone and they just would have it because rangers travel around all the freaking time or like a strange tooth uh or or claw or knuckle bone um from all the different animals that they've seen in their travels um uh if you're playing them as a player like definitely that is something huge that the gm can use in your backstory to like sort of um give you storylines or story arcs so you could be put on assignment from your your merchant guild to go investigate xyz cave or dungeon or you know forest desert what have you and sort of like bring back something interesting that they could sell it's it's really like the the epitome of like the fetch quest character, um, which I think they can definitely be like really fun. Um, but even moving beyond that, like knowing that maybe you just have like a standing assignment to pick up anything interesting, and so balancing you know party need versus your your obligation to your merchants guild in the same way that paladins have like the the idea of a tithe. Um, so making sure like, Hey, this cool gemstone, you know, we could sell it at the tavern for an extra night, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the city, or, you know, we, I could hold on to it because that's, you know, a promise that I've made, um, to my merchants guild. So that's kind of like my, my first idea. Do you have any thoughts to throw onto that? To, to touch on what you were saying, it's sort of like that ranger is a guild merchant in the same way that Indiana Jones is a professor. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, sort of. <laughs> yeah, there, it's more about going out and adventures, but they can, they also do this other thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in Caleb and I, we always talk about these, there's always the easy way of saying they were a guild merchant and now they're not. Like, you know, that you just sort of, something happened, it's like their superhero origin. They were a guild merchant and then something happened and now they're a ranger. Mm-hmm. But to kind of combine them together, one of the first things that I thought of is one of the biggest things about early trade was establishing trade routes. Mm. You know, whoever could get from point A to point B the quickest and safest was usually the more successful merchant. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense for a large merchant guild or family to have people whose job it is is to find new routes or find new places to establish trade. So it makes, you know, you just as an adventurer... You find a lost civilization, quick letter back to home. Hey, I found this tribe. They're primitive, but they have these really intricate, you know, furs or weapons or whatever. Or, you know, even if you want to do like the dark route, like we could just 
you know, take all their stuff because they're they're primitive. Someone knows, you know, they don't have any weapons. So it makes a lot of sense that you could just be out and about looking for new places and, and shorter routes. Makes total sense to me. Sort of the good version would be, let's say you have an area of forest, just because it's the classic, and there is a tribe or a culture inside there that you want to protect. So you have become the face. And you say, I will come out, you know, every three weeks with, X, Y, and Z of the things that you want from this culture or from this forest. And I will sell them to you in exchange for you not coming in here and like strip mining the place. Like you're not going to cut down all the trees. You're not going to take all of their baubles or, or whatever the case may be. So you, you sort of almost, you're a ranger who was forced into being a merchant to protect the area that they want to protect as a ranger. Mm. Yeah. And that could be like a really cool way to play with like ideas of imperialism or colonialism and sort of like, you know, using using those as ways to, you know, interrogate the way that we see those situations presented in media. Yes. Yeah, that's really cool. I think the first one makes more sense for an adventurer. Yeah. The second one would probably be a better NPC. Yeah. Because they're not going to want to leave unless something happens that forces them to. Yeah. Uh, but then you're kind of negating that background at that point because they're not doing the thing that they're doing anymore. Mm-hmm. So that probably would be a better NPC or a starting point. Like, again, maybe you, that's what you do. Yeah. And then something else happens and puts them in danger so that you're now forced to go into the adventure to save them from a bigger threat. Mm-hmm. My second idea is the one that I think I would want to play as a player, because okay. I think it's, it's a little bit more in line with my like play style, which is the person, like you said, who started as a guild merchant and then became a ranger. But in the same way that wizards learn their spells through research and, like, devotion to, um, like, study, uh, this person would have learned their ranger skills through their experience as being a guild merchant. So maybe, you know, this person grew up in a bustling metropolis, the child of a, a merchant or, a, you know, an oddities peddler who just sits in the back all day doing inventory and just cataloging things. But because of the similarities that they notice between different bone shapes or different like teeth or, or, you know, the different styles of jewelry or cuts of weapons that come into the shop as their, their parent is, you know, selling all these things back and forth. And they're in the back, like listening to adventurers tell tales of like, um, how they went to the high mountains and then seeing all the things that they get, that get brought back and learning how to be a, like a ranger from that. So getting the experience of the world sort of like from this from this secondhand experience. And I think that that would be something that would be really fun to play because you're not quite there yet. So like you have approximate knowledge of many of these things, but it, it still would be something that would be fun to play at the table. Like that can't be an owl bear. Owl bears are green. Um, or like owl bears have huge like tusks that come down um, as you're fighting what is clearly an owl bear. <laughs> yeah. Or I, I think something about that. It, it, you definitely could play that character for, for humor. Yeah. You know, it, it's the very classic book knowledge versus street knowledge, mm-hmm. or in this case, force knowledge. You know, it could be like, oh, look, this track means there's an owl bear within, you know, a hundred. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> like you, you don't see the owl bear over there but you notice the track and you know that that means there's one really close by yep. but you don't realize wait that means there's one really close by r-o-u-s's i don't think <laughs> yeah. they exist I don't think <laughs> <laughs> ah. 
I think it could also be like really played for seriousness. And so like my my whole playstyle is like serious and zany at the same time. <laughs> so I would love to have this character who is like yeah, I definitely heard stories about adventurers telling these dragons have like feathers and they're covered in fur, but also like <laughs> being having that yearning to like explore and uh, do yeah. more with your life because all you've seen is the world through this secondhand experience. So, you know, yeah, all all I did in my life was just do inventory and now it's my time to actually go out and live the stories and go through these experiences and finding out that the world isn't exactly what the world was that was told to me by these adventurers that were coming in. And maybe they're just full of BS. Like, they're just talking the big talk so that they can do things. Like, that's an owl bear? I thought that they were three stories tall and covered in, like, fiery scales. Like, this is a, a letdown, honestly. Like, I thought adventuring would be more. <laughs> right. And, like, sort of, like, going through what that would mean in terms of, you know, that expectation versus reality of living a life as a ranger um, because you've learned about it through this sort of mercantile experience. Yeah, I do really enjoy that, the the unlived life, mm -hmm. you know, someone who's had a boring, mundane job, even in a D&D world, and they want to go on an adventure, and then the sudden realization that, oh, this is actually very dangerous. Yeah. You know, th this is why I haven't done this, but then they, they, you know, they triumph through it. Um, you know, I could see a character like, you know, someone's like, let's say they're, you know, again, they're the mail room clerk. Mm -hmm. They go to a tavern after work and they hear the people are like, Hey, we need a guide. Like we will pay money for a guide. They're like, here's my chance. Yeah. You know? And so they're like, Oh yeah, I'm a guide. I, you know, I know all about, the forest and all i do is look at mail routes i can tell you exactly where the roads are <laughs> exactly so so they try to you know somewhat bluff their way into a party to have that adventure and they're not incompetent yeah. but again it's all book knowledge versus real knowledge and there's there's some places for humor and also some places for a little bit of you know uh not sadness i think but um melancholy melancholy you know that this isn't what i thought it would be but now I'm in it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you could definitely have a triumph of character with those two coming together mm -hmm. and, and a new person emerging. You know, this is what I did. This is what I want. This is now who I am. Yeah. Uh, I think that could be a lot of fun to explore as a character. Yeah. Like I said, I think this is the one that I would want to play most. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always like to try to come up with like an example from media and I can't think of a good one. Well, I think you did. So um, we talked a little bit about Indiana Jones and if if we're thinking about ranger like ranger boy i love forgetting words as i'm about to say them <laughs> i want to say architect but i know that that is 100 i know what it thank you <laughs> i was yeah. like i know what an architect is and he's not one of those <laughs> um yeah so if we're talking about indiana jones as like the ranger uh, archaeologist like all the people that are trying to get what he's after to sell them are the ranger guild merchants like they're the people who are exploring and like Ranger Guild Merchant to me is like the epitome of like the classic I like idea of the adventurer who's out there to get loot to come back to sell it. So Belloc would be not not necessarily Indy himself, but yeah. the, the guy who constantly shows up, takes the thing he gets and then tries to sell it. Yep. Perfect. I think that works. All right. So any last words on Guild Merchant Ranger? Only that I can guarantee that the next 5e game that I play, I'm going to be playing the backstore, like, stocking clerk who learned how to ranger from doing inventory. <laughs> <laughs>
and you get really you could do that with any class uh maybe not wizard or cleric you know someone who actually has power but you could be someone who read a lot of books about rogues and, mm-hmm. you know and you know they they know the lingo and yeah you know, they they know how to pick a lock by reading manuals but they've never actually done it type of a thing mm-hmm. I like the alchemist inventory clerk who's like all right nightshade goes over here it's poisonous <sighs> sage goes over here it brings good luck like all the <laughs> nice all right so as always we will throw things back out to the audience uh, if you have ever played a guild merchant ranger and would like to give us some feedback on how you did it what you did with it what was fun what wasn't fun we would like to hear your thoughts on that obviously you can leave it in the comments below or hit us up on social media we would uh, hope that you've enjoyed today's show but we're not done just quite yet uh, we do have a new patreon that we need to thank uh, no new itunes reviews unfortunately but our newest academaniac is james sweetland james thank you so much for becoming a patron of the rpg academy your support means a lot it helps us grow and do bigger and better things um, and then again, iTunes, we're two away from our hundredth iTunes review on, on USA. I really want to get there. So if you've not given us a uh, review just yet, now is the time to do so. And of course, if you don't use iTunes, because a lot of people don't, and I know Google Play doesn't give you the ability to leave reviews. Android doesn't leave, allow you to leave uh, reviews. You can go to Stitcher Radio and leave a review. So even if you don't listen to us on Stitcher Radio, you can still go to Stitcher Radio and leave us a review. If you don't want to give us any money or don't want to leave any reviews, you can still help out the show by buying things. If you go to our website first and click on our Amazon link, just shop as you normally would shop, and anything you buy, we get a small percentage. Same thing with DriveThruRPG. Just go to us first, click on our link, and then shop as normal, and we get a small percentage. Uh, Taylor, if people would like to help support your show, how can they do that? I will tell you in just a moment, but first, if you're listening and you haven't left an iTunes review for the RPG Academy, go do so. Like right now, hey, it takes about a minute to do so. You just go onto iTunes and here, I'll even tell you what to type. Five stars. Boy, I love the RPG Academy. That's the, the title. <laughs> and then in the text of the review, just say, hey, I really love this show about RPGs. I think that they cover a lot of great topics and I feel better listening to them. I especially enjoy the episodes with Taylor on them. <laughs> Done. Sent. It, that's like the time that it takes to type that um, is, is It writes good. itself. Yeah, there we go. Um, pl- honestly, like, please go do so. Like, podcasts really thrive on the reviews that we get um not only does it let people you know know more about the show and puts us in front in front of more eyes but i can definitely tell you that the reviews that i've got from my shows really brighten my day um i have kind of a stressful job uh and anytime that i see a review that comes in uh or it's like people are saying good things about the things that i make like that is really affirming and like super powerful so in the time that i've been talking about leaving a review for the rpg academy um that's that is literally the time that it takes to write a review. So I, I highly, highly encourage you to do so. Thank you very much. And again, so if someone wants to leave a review for your show as well, they can do so uh, the same. If they want to support you any other way, how can they do that? Yeah. So the, the biggest way to support me is by supporting me on Patreon. So I have a Patreon at patreon.com slash riverhouse games. Um, and you can set uh, small monthly donations. You will get early access 24 hours to um, all of the podcasts that I uh, make. So there are three of them, the Leviathan Files, a Mass Effect actual play, uh, Game Closet, which is a proud member of the RPG Academy Network, mm-hmm. um, and uh, From the Jackals to the Shepherds, which is a micro-podcast playing The Quiet Year. And so you get 24 hours early access to those. Um, a couple other higher levels are early access to the RPGs that I write. And I... 
this is where I get to gush and brag and be like super happy because I am working on an RPG with Rich Howard currently. Oh, nice. And it is so fun. It is amazing. So, Rich, I know that you're listening to this. I cannot thank you enough for asking me to be a part of this team. And I cannot wait to to see this thing um, finished. It's It's great. I love it. And then, uh, you know, I think the, the biggest non-monetary way to support is just interacting with me. So I'm on Twitter at Leviathan Files, but I, I love having people, you know, reach out to me and saying, you know, hey, I love the show. I love what you're doing. It really brightens my day uh, when I hear that. And to get like kind of real for a moment, I've had people tell like come out to me because of here in Game Closet, and I cannot tell you, like, how amazing that experience is that, like, people are sharing this personal side of them with me because of something that I made and put on the internet and, like, talking to me about their experiences, you know, being queer and, like, in the gaming space and, like, just how powerful that is that people are, like, reaching out and being like, hey, this is something that touched me in a personal way and affected me in my personal life. And I... like, that is something that has been rewarding in ways that I could not have seen, like, even being remotely possible. So, like, that is something that I I, I, I love that's happening and I want more to happen. <laughs> Don't ever think that an email or a tweet or a comment is not appreciated. Mm-hmm. Not just for us, but basically any podcast that you listen to, even the ones that are uber successful and have, you know, thousands and thousands of followers and downloaders and, and whatever. Every time we get a comment on a, on an episode or a tweet or an email, it really is an, it's an awesome moment for us. I mean, mm-hmm. and I, I know I've talked about this before, you know, this is a, still a hobby for me. You know, again, I, I've gotten a lot of rewards from doing it and I love doing it, but it's still a hobby. I don't make near enough money off this to make this my job. I still have a job, still have a wife, still have kids. I have all these other responsibilities. There have absolutely been times where I've thought, should I just stop? You know, like, like, do I need to keep doing this? Is it worth the time and effort I put into it? And it does seem in a way that whenever I'm at those moments, that's when we get a new review or that's when someone sends me an email and says, you know, I haven't gamed in 20 years. And thanks to your show, I'm now starting a new game up with my kids. And those are the things that's like, okay, yeah, clearly I need to keep doing this. So it doesn't have to be money. You don't have to buy things. Just a kind word in an email or a tweet or a retweet means a lot to people like mm-hmm. myself and to Taylor, who, again, this is still our hobby. And it, those little bits of encouragement keep us going. Heck yeah. Awesome. So with all of that, this has been Michael. And this has been Taylor. And this meeting is adjourned. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review 
Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com and reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google Plus at vrpgacademy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.